You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and senior medical advisor for PrimeMed, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Is there anything the average practitioner can do to further the goals of better health care worldwide? Should the average American doctor care about health care anywhere else? Joining us to discuss these and other questions is medical anthropologist, physician, and founding director of Partners in Health, Dr. Paul Farmer. Welcome, Paul. It's great of you to come on our program. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks, Marty. I understand that you aren't too far away right now. You're up talking to us from, from Canada. Is that right? That's right. I wanted to start by telling the audience that I see Paul all the time. I mean, uh, on a regular basis. I'll be walking down the pike at the Brigham, which is the main hallway, and there he is in his white coat doing consults, ID consults, just like all the other folks there. And then the next minute, the next day, off to all over the world to do this uh, remarkable work that I think everybody knows about here. Uh, I just wanted to start by asking you, Paul, why should the average guy, you know, or woman practicing medicine, aside from just sort of pure altruism, which is obviously a good thing in its own right, why do they need to care about what's going on in the prisons in Russia and in Haiti and so on? Can you give us a little insight? Well, I think that's a great question. It's one that I struggle with because I'm asked so frequently. And, you know, I've developed a series of not stock answers, but reflections, really. And some of them are fairly philosophical, which isn't my strong suit. I can go back to very pragmatic considerations, such as when you look at epidemic diseases, I do, these are never really national phenomena. They're really transnational. And that's why you have institutions or organizations like even the CIA saying, well, AIDS is a national security issue. Now, I don't really think that way. That's not what drives my engagement. So there are a couple of things I say to my friends who ask me this question. You know, one is our health care system also needs some improvement. I don't think American doctors are going to dispute that anymore, if indeed they did some decades ago. And we can learn things from the work that we do. For example, the work that we started in Haiti 25 years ago has informed the care we provide to chronic disease patients in Boston. It came right out of the same community-based model of care. And another thing that I tell my colleagues and friends who ask me this question is, this is really work that's very interesting and compelling. So I have friends from the Brigham, for example, people you know, who've come to Haiti to perform surgery or who are working with us in Rwanda. And I know that they get a great deal out of that work and are quick to say they get more out of it than the patients in Haiti or Africa do. And then finally, I think a lot of Americans, just as citizens of the world, are concerned with what's happening in other places. There are some issues like, you know, people talk now about global warming, finally. These are clearly not issues that can be solved by any one nation state. And, you know, because we have a lot of privilege in our country and a lot, really, a lot of resources, frankly, even in the face of a financial downturn, I think, you know, there's also that moral imperative to do this work. So there's a lot of different ways that I answer that question, Marty, depending on the spirit in which it was asked. I hear a lot about, and, and you see a lot of wasted resources here in our country in taking care of patients. And there's a lot of talk about trying to deal with that. I wonder sometimes, how do you oscillate back and forth between the world of the over-testing and the world where you really have to depend on your senses, your ability to take a history and examine patients? Do you find that difficult? 
Well, I found it difficult many years ago, and now I find it more bracing than difficult because, you know, as Partners in Health has grown, our ability to move resources back and forth across these administrative boundaries has, has grown as well. So when you're right, clinically speaking, a lot of the people I work with are pushed to develop their skills, their diagnostic skills more, but also we're pushed to improve laboratory capacity in places like rural Haiti or the sites in rural Africa where we work. And I've found that bracing, as I said. And, you know, again, I think when we look at the waste on one side of those boundaries and the need on the other, it makes sense for all sorts of reasons that we approach this much more systemically. And so as the years have gone by, I've really come to enjoy that part of the process, which is really redistributive, if I may, of talent and and capacity and resources. I had an interview with Faith Fitzgerald, a very outspoken, renowned internist from California, and she was saying that uh, she thought there was really a place in American medical education for better educating people about how to do a physical examination, how to do a history, and not depend on all of these tests. This, in a way, makes it makes a person a better clinician, doesn't it? You were always a good clinician, but you, I bet you're a better clinician because you had to depend on your wits more. I think that you know we strengthen our capacity to do the physical exam because we're forced to. That doesn't mean I wouldn't like to have a nice CT in the middle of rural Rwanda. And I would get one if I could and and will if I can. Let me ask you a different kind of question, infections and inequities. You talked about what you called invisible women. There were three examples in the book, an African-American woman, a Haitian woman, an Indian woman who had acquired HIV through what was called non-voluntary sex. I wonder if you could update us a little bit about this. I mean, is this situation getting better because of the exposure of this kind of problem? Or do you think this is still a big problem out there? You know, I wrote that essay in the mid-90s. And just at the time that antiretroviral therapy was becoming available globally. And so I'd say two things, one about risk and the other about treatment. So risk for new infections and how we slow down and about treatment. Let me start with the latter, as many doctors do, and say that in terms of therapy, and being able to care for women like the ones described in the in that book, we're in a measurably better situation. We have terrific diagnostics, unlike with tuberculosis, for example. We have a test that can diagnose without false positives or false negatives HIV infection. It's easy to stage with a CD4 count. And we have about 30 drugs available almost out of the pipeline, whereas we really didn't have many before the mid-'90s. So Things are much, much better. Plus, we have two major funding mechanisms for work in, in the places where at least two of those women you read about in the book live. We have the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and also the uh, U.S. government efforts, which have been called until recently PEPFAR. So th- anybody who's a doctor or a nurse will tell you, or a patient, of course, that things are much better. But back to the, what you mentioned, the involuntary nature of sexual exchange that related to infection in these instances, this sort of survival sex is very common in the poorest parts of the world. So really, we're talking about risk that's created by poverty and gender inequality. And unfortunately, in the absence of a vaccine, we are not targeting poverty and gender inequality and reducing them as a way of lessening risk for women living in poverty. They were the subject of that essay, Invisible Women. And that has not improved very much. We still are focused a lot on what are called cognitive or behavioral interventions to reduce risk, but it's not that clear that they're going to reduce the majority of risk for the women who I described in that essay. So I think we have a long way to go in making HIV prevention more scientific. And one of the things that slowed us down, Marty, is there's been this ongoing debate 
about treatment versus prevention rather than treatment and prevention together and how they could be mutually reinforcing. So we still have a long way to go. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss what the average American doctor can do to further the goal of better health care worldwide and other topics is medical anthropologist, physician, and founding director of Partners in Health, an international nonprofit health care direct service and advocacy organization, is Dr. Paul Farmer. Paul, as a follow-up, that last comment that you made, which I thought was very interesting, uh, there was an interesting remark by Noam Chomsky in your book, Uses of Haiti, in which he said, I think it was his opening remark in the foreword, he said, I'm afraid that this book is slated for oblivion. Of course, he was hoping it wouldn't. And I wonder what your take on it is. I mean, are people paying more attention? Do you feel that there's real progress? And where in the world do you think the biggest problem spots remain? Well, you know, I think actually that things are improved in many senses. I mean, it depends a lot. I'm an American, so I'll just speak as American. It depends a lot on, on what's going on in Washington. If you're looking at global health and foreign policy, there's been some ironies in my view over the last several years. I am not a big fan of foreign policy of the outgoing administration. And have, as anyone who read the book that you mentioned would know, but I have to say, in terms of global health, they did a lot of work. I mean, PEPFAR, which means the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, is far and away the largest global health program in human history. And that I'm grateful for, and I think doctors and nurses and patients and community health workers should be. So it's gotten better on, on some arenas, but now we have a long way to go to rebuild our reputation in other places in the world where there's ongoing what I've called structural violence, which is kind of a nerdy term, but it's one way to describe the kind of violence that you don't see with the naked eye always. It's not like a, a war, a conflict, or a car bomb. It's the kind of violence that's endured by people living in poverty and marginalized by forces like racism and gender inequality. So I think we have a long way to go, but I believe the doors are open and that American physicians, I hope that we'll clean up our own house, but I also hope that we'll continue to be involved and, and increasingly so in, in global health. It's a complicated issue. And of course, we just had this exciting election here. We're all optimistic that we're going to see even more progress there. What about the situation in Haiti with the current government? Is the situation there better? Well, it's better than it was after the last coup, which occurred in February 2004. In fact, I was on service that day at the Brigham. And that was a real low point because it reversed a lot of gains. Haiti, as you know, is our oldest neighbor. It's the oldest nation in Latin America. And between 1804 and 1990, they never had direct universal suffrage, of, you know, free and fair elections. In the years since 1990, when they have, they've always voted for the same platform, the same people. And then the elected governments come into office and then they're overturned by military coups. And, and so the years after 2004 were very difficult, but the last couple of years I think have been better. And there's a, once again a constitutional government in place. There's so much that our country could do to improve our relations with Haiti for, you know, the cost of a couple days of prosecuting the war in Iraq. You could, you know, basically equal the entire budget of the government of Haiti. And, you know, there's just a, a lot we could do. Could you update us on the status of a tuberculosis? I mean, when, when I was a medical house officer over at Boston City, we saw a fair amount of TB, but everybody got INH and everything was easily treatable or reasonably easily treatable. And I, I don't remember a case of drug-resistant TB from that period. That was 1971. 
What is the status of TB? Is it coming back now with a vengeance and a very serious threat everywhere in the world? Well, because it's airborne, one has to assume that if it's a threat in one place, it will become a threat in other places. And I think that right now it is the leading single infectious killer of young adults after HIV in the world. So it's a huge problem. And there's also some other developments that are troubling, and that is development of drug-resistant TB, as you mentioned. That didn't exist 50 or 60 years ago. Drug-resistant TB did, but multidrug-resistant TB, or even what's called extensively drug-resistant TB, which is resistant to most of the good antibiotics, we're seeing this outbreaks in probably 50 or 60 countries registered already. So I think that, A, the burden of disease is still huge, and B, there are new forms of much more difficult to treat TB, and then C, I just mentioned that we had good diagnostics in HIV. We don't for TB. The main diagnostic we use is over 100 years old. We're playing catch-up as far as preventives go. We have no vaccine as far as diagnostics go and as far as therapeutics go. But we will, I'm, I'm quite confident, be able to catch up with the right resources. I want to thank my guest, medical anthropologist, physician, and founding director of Partners in Health, an international nonprofit healthcare direct service and advocacy organization, Dr. Paul Farmer. Thanks so much for spending this time with us, Paul, on Inspired to Act. Thank you, Marty. I, I look forward to coming back soon. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. PrimeMed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty. Online, because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule. And in print, because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300-plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PrimeMed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative, cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PrimeMed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. That's www.primed.com. Thank you for learning with PrimeMed.